Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, that we might hear for, with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Uh, our lesson today is from Matthew 13, starting with verse 44. Matthew 13, starting with verse 44. I'll give you a second to find it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood this? Jesus asked. They answered, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, as I've been uh, going through this uh, Living Jesus' Parables series that we're on, um, I realize that the, you know, the Bible can be funny sometimes. And more specifically, I should say that Bible scholars can be funny sometimes. The Bible can be funny too. My wife was cracking up reading uh, reading Judges last week, uh, and you can ask her why. It really is actually pretty funny. Um, and yet more specifically, I should say this, that it's the people who write those little subheadings that you find in your Bible that can be funny. Because a lot of times they apply these little terms to different passages, and it gives you insight onto their conception and oftentimes the popular conception of what a particular passage is about. And so, you know, for example, we have perhaps Jesus' most famous parable we tend to call the parable of the prodigal son. And when we read that parable, we tend to concentrate on the son. We think about the the younger son. Wait, there's actually two sons in that parable. There's a younger son and an older son, and they both have something to teach us. And then there's a father in that story, too, and he has something to teach us. And the mother's not there either, and you kind of wonder what would have happened if the mother had been there. Maybe this wouldn't have gone wrong in the first place. Uh, So maybe there's something there to teach us as well. When we just kind of apply our nice little convenient shorthands to a text uh, of Scripture, and especially with the parables, I think sometimes we come to the the Bible assuming, or come to that parable assuming we know what it means, and then miss out on some of the treasures that are to be found within it. So as I was uh, preparing today, I noticed that the shorthand title for these three parables that we read, um, when, when in the different Bibles that I looked at, they didn't just give it a, you know, kind of a blindingly obvious 
uh, title like the parable of the lost treasure or the parable of the the pearl of great price. Um, They tended to lump them all together and they gave uh, these weird little shorthands for them. One of them uh, just said, uh, further parables of the kingdom. Okay, further parables of the kingdom. Interesting. One said, just three parables. Okay, thanks. I wouldn't have figured that out on my own. And one just said, other parables. And, and it's like these three, the, the, the story about this treasure in the field, the story about the merchant in search of a pearl, and this odd story about casting a net for fish. Um, they seem to be almost neglected. And it seems like sometimes... Maybe the Bible scholars don't know quite what to do with them. And of course, there's all a plethora of opinions out there, but it seems like these are, these are strange little stories, maybe even more so than most. And of course, uh, what that makes me want to do is to dive deeper and to really figure out what's going on here, because I like strange little neglected stories, uh, and uh, that's just how my brain works. But to me, these are a reminder to us as we go, because we continue to go through this series on living Jesus' parables. Um, it's a reminder to us, to first of all, to dig deeper. We can't just accept, okay, they, they give us, it's a parable about a lost son. It's a parable about a sower. You know, We can't just accept that little shorthand. We have to dive in and figure out what's actually going on. And that's perhaps nowhere more obvious than in a story where it's uh, not initially clear quite what's going on. And we don't have that convenient little shorthand in some cases. It's also a reminder to me that these parables, they don't always have a nice static little meaning that we can discern. We have, All right, this is our spiritual lesson from this parable, and we don't need to think about it beyond that. Because the parables speak in their original context, yes, but they also speak anew to us so that when we go back to the scriptures and we read them and we pray about these and we dwell on them, they can speak with new power into our current situation. So yes, they have a meaning in Jesus' original context. But the way that parables are supposed to work is they're, you can't just pin them down, right? They kind of move on you. And, and it, it comes into our life now, into our situations now, and teaches us something new. Um, so let's, let's take a look at these. Let's start with this. Two that seem very similar, this parable of the treasure in a field and the parable of the so-called pearl of great price. Now, superficially, these two stories, they look a lot alike, right? Both have a person who sells all that he has. And by the way, there's no reason that we shouldn't take these stories at face value. Uh, All that he has means all that he has, the house, the car, the VCR, the above-ground swimming pool, uh, and more seriously, in that day, the wife and children, because you could sell people in that day. There was slavery. There's no reason to not say that all that he has means all that he has, everything. He sells where he lives. He sells the clothes off his back. He sells any savings of food that he has. He sells his family away, sells everything you could do that, and goes and buys this field or goes and buys this pearl. So this is a story about what it means to go and find something of, of surpassing value, a hidden treasure, this, this singularly beautiful and rare pearl. And so the lesson we take from it at first glance, and I think this is a good lesson to take, is that um, when God's kingdom comes, and it's already come amongst us in Jesus, 
then the right response is to be willing to give up everything for it. To be, able to, will, to be willing to sacrifice everything that we are, all that we have, so that we might know God and might be a part of what he's doing. And that's a great, that's a great start to reading these parables. But let's dig a little bit deeper. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious just from the, the surface. And Jesus likes to tell stories with meanings that aren't quite as obvious, I think, sometimes. So as we dig a little deeper, we find out that these stories aren't exactly alike. Uh, in the case of the man who finds a treasure in the field, we have someone who isn't looking for something valuable at all. He just, he just stumbles upon it. And when he finds it, he knows what he found. he's found. And it completely changes his life. He wasn't looking for it, but here it is. And he's willing to give up everything for the sake of his new discovery. And so it is sometimes with being a Christian. God's grace comes to us as a pure grift. That's what, sometimes that's, that's all the time, in fact. A pure surprise. You know, we didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We weren't even necessarily looking for it. But when we discover it, or more properly, when we realize that God has already discovered us, it transforms us and it transforms all of our plans and our priorities. And whatever else we were doing, we give up that and we start following God instead. But the case of the the merchant who's looking for great pearls is a little different. I mean, he's actively seeking it out. The man in the field's not looking for anything in particular. But the merchant is in search of a great pearl. That's what the parable says. And we, he's striving for it. He's, you, know, you can imagine him at his little desk or whatever, going through all of these little pearls, looking for one that is uh, nice and beautiful and perfect. And he's seeking it out. And, and when he discovers it, he realizes that he must give up everything else so we can have it. And so it is for us sometimes as a Christian. You know, we come and we, we study and we pray and we worship and we seek out God. And we, we, through that diligent seeking of God, it sometimes seems like we come to this moment and all of a sudden all of this past that we've had, all of this seeking that we have, have had, all of this struggle we realize what it's been for. And we have this great revelation of God and what he's doing in our life and, and how he's been with us the whole way. And sometimes it's like that as a Christian. But if we take a step back, I think even entering into the Christian life is something like this merchant in a different sense. Because all of us, whether we will actively acknowledge it or not, are seeking out something. And whatever... Uh, that you know, proverbial God-shaped hole is in our life, we'll fill it up with something. And we might fill it up with good things, with family or with food or with a relationship or with, uh, with you know, these things that are good gifts, but we put them in the place of God instead of realizing where they are ordered under God. And so they become an idol for us. And sometimes we replace God with those. And we find that even though we've been searching for all of these things and collecting them, that we find out that they don't satisfy. And sometimes we replace God with things that aren't uh, so good. Sometimes we replace God with anger or with envy or with pride or with lust or with all of these other things that at some level work for us maybe and satisfy us and we think they make us feel good and we indulge them. But ultimately, they don't bring us 
the joy that is offered to us when we are able to accept what God has done for us and God's kingdom as a gift for us. So here too, uh, when we realize, when we come to that moment and we realize what God, who God really is and what he's doing, um, the proper response is to give up those other things um, or to properly order those other things. It's a bad thing, the envy, the lust, the pride, obviously that must be surrendered. But even the good things, um, food or maybe our jobs or our families even, uh, to realize that those are only, they only have value if they are valued within what it means to follow God and to be a part of Christ and the kingdom that he's bringing. And so even the good things in our life um, have to be surrendered in a sense if we're going to be a part of God and what God is doing. So perhaps the, the first lesson that we draw from these two stories then is that when we encounter God and whatever way we encounter him, whether we're actively seeking him out or whether we're not actively seeking him out, the important thing is to be willing to surrender the entirety of ourselves so that we might be a part of his kingdom. With these two strange characters, it doesn't end here because the man who finds a treasure in a field and sells all that he has so he could have the money to go and buy it is engaged in a little bit of of shady dealing because he he knows that there's a treasure in this field. And it seems from the story that the person he buys it from doesn't realize this. And so he doesn't apparently tell the person that, hey, I found this treasure in your field and I want to buy it. He just buys the field. And that's unethical, right? That's that's not allowed. That's probably, I, I don't know about contemporary law, but I know that in uh, in, in Roman law, this was discussed a lot, what you do if you know about a treasure in a field. And, and the consensus was that you needed to disclose this. I mean, this guy who buys the field, he's, he's up to something kind of shady. Uh, maybe even something immoral. And I don't think Jesus is endorsing doing something immoral for God. I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But what I think that he is saying is that uh, to be a part of God's kingdom puts you at odds with the rest of society. I mean, people even call Jesus immoral. That he, he said that they said that he associated with you know drunkards and tax collectors and sinners and all of this. And so maybe to be a part of God's kingdom means that you are put at odds with what the world deems the quote unquote right thing to do. Um, interesting. The kingdom of heaven is like real estate fraud. It's a strange analogy, but it's showing the extremes to which we must go if we are going to follow God. Again, I'm not saying go, please don't let me hear next week that y'all engage in some real estate fraud. Uh, don't take this quite literally. It's, a, it's a, a story to show the extremity of the surrender that we have to give. And then the, this man who, uh, well, let me give you an analogy. If I came to Greg and I, and I realized that there was an oil derrick uh, under uh, under uh, or not an oil derrick, an oil field under Greg's property. And I say, Greg, I want to I want to buy your property. And I go and I sell all my stuff. And he says, All right, great deal. And I give him a good good price on it. Let's say I have the funds to do that. And he comes back the next week and he sees this oil derrick on his on his property. And I have a Scrooge McDuck money bin out back. He's going to say, What happened? What happened? Why why is this why 
did you, you ripped me off. You ripped me off. <laughs> Following God could be something like that, to going to, to that extreme so that we can get uh, what it means to be a part of what God is doing. But the merchant on the other end, he, he's not up to anything wrong. I mean, he's, he's doing what he normally does. He's a merchant in search of, of pearls, and he's going, he's, and he's seeking one out. But when he finds one, he does this strange thing. He sells everything he has so we can buy one pearl. Now, I'm not a financial advisor, uh, but from what I understand, you're supposed to keep your, your uh, assets diversified, right? You want a little bit in stocks and a little bit in bonds, and you, know, you, want to, you don't want to have all your, your savings in one company because it might go broke. You, know, you don't want to like just bury it all under the mattress because you know, what if your house burns down? You want to diversify your assets. But so the decision that this merchant makes, it's a foolish decision. And he sells everything so he can have this one undiversified investment. He can have this one pearl. This one pearl. And so the kingdom of heaven is like an undiversified investment. To, to be will, so confident in what God is doing that we know that we can trust him with everything. And we don't have to rely on our own wit and wisdom to be able to navigate our way through the world. Now again, I'm not commending this as uh, how you should say for your retirement, but it's an illustration of what it means to be wholly given over to God's kingdom and what he's doing. It's putting all of your eggs in one basket and being totally committed to that basket. So the kingdom of heaven, it looks like total commitment. After these two stories, we get another interesting little story. And Jesus says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate out the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is often called the, the parable of the dragnet. And I'm not talking, it's not talking about, you know, Inspector Joe Friday, you know, da 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 It's not that. This dragnet, it's a big, uh, it's a huge, like, six foot by uh, potentially 700 foot long net that it took a lot of people to operate. And they go out and they cast it in the sea, they bring it ashore, and they do exactly what's described here. They bring in fish of every kind, good fish and bad fish. But the strange thing about this story is that when you catch bad fish, you don't, I mean, what do you do? You throw them back into the water, right? The ones that are too little, the ones that you don't eat or whatever. You throw them back in. Or maybe you might keep them and bury them and use them for fertilizer. You don't throw them into a furnace uh, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this line about throwing them into the furnace, it, it harkens back to what we read with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It's an image of final judgment. Um, it's an image of what God is going to do to sort out good from evil in this world. And you might recall uh, from last week that the image of separating out good from evil relates, yes, to, to human beings individually, but it also relates to rooting out of the evil in our own lives and our own hearts. Uh, because when the kingdom of God comes, there's no room anymore for wrongdoing. And so it requires a purging of our own lives. It requires God untangling all of the complicated 
uh, bits of good and evil in this world and separating them out, and so that only the good remains. And if we want to go back to the previous parables, we can trust God, we can be wholly committed to God, because we know that God promises to make all things right at the end. Uh, we sang it here in the the hymn number seven, and I don't know if you picked this out because I mentioned the other week that I love Habakkuk 2.14 or not, or if you just read my mind or what you were doing, but that great little line that the earth will be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the image here. I mean, this is a fearful image, yes, because it's an image of judgment, but ultimately what that's an image of is about God making things right. In the story, the, the, the bad fish are cast out. I like to think that those are the fish that they send to Captain D's uh, because I can't imagine why anyone would go to Captain D's when there's Cock of the Walk or the Country Squire or any of the great places to eat fish in the state of Mississippi. I don't know why anyone would ever go to Captain D's. But I'm not judging you if you go, understand. But I just imagine that's where the bad fish go. That's the furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's Captain D's. Um, But the good is separated from the bad because we can trust that God will make all things right. That's what this is about. And we need that in our own lives. We need God to start executing that judgment for us, to call us forward in holiness. And because we can trust Him that He will will bring us to completion, that He'll bring the world and make things right. So finally, at the end of this parable, we have this little response that Jesus gives. All of chapter 13 in Matthew is is these parable stories. Um, You might have noticed that we've been sticking with one chapter here for the last several weeks. Jesus asked the disciples, have you understood all this? And they say, yes, we've understood all this, right? Yeah, right. I mean, they never seem to quite get it. So I don't trust their answer that they have understood all this, but they seem to want to say, yes, we understand. Um, Jesus says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out treasures old, uh, who, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When he finished these parables, he left that place. And what this is a reminder of me, uh, to me of, is this. That the, the God's kingdom always requires, in a sense, translation. And the early Christians, they inherited the Old Testament. They inherited... Uh, a story of Jesus that was thoroughly in relation to what God had done with Israel. And then they took that to a world that spoke uh, in their main, as the, as the sort of lingua franca, the, the, the language that was used to communicate across the world, a Greek and Roman world, uh, a Greek and Latin world. And so they, they took this strange little culture and they figured out how to explain it to the rest of the world. And then they say, all right, well, God's doing something new. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. That's uh, Marcionism. It was ruled a heresy, right? Uh, and thank goodness y'all go and you study verse by verse in Jeremiah. And we, we haven't forgotten that. Um, but they figured out what it was like to take this story of God's work with his ancient people and what God had now done anew in Jesus and explained that to people who didn't have uh, a cultural relation to be able to understand that. And it's similar with us. Um, we as Christians, we have certain traditions that we have, we have used to worship and all of that. And those are good things because God has used that to draw people close to him over the years. But every generation faces the task of being able to take that inheritance that we have 
and to apply it into a new context. And that doesn't mean that we don't like sing old hymns anymore. We do that all the time. And I love to do that because I, I mean, I like older style worship. Um, but we figure out how to take that inheritance that we've had, the legacy of God's work in this place, for example, and then to be able to carry that on to a new generation. The treasures of God that are old, the, what God has been doing with us all along, and the treasure of God that is new, the new thing that God might do in this place or in any place. And I think the connection back here to these previous stories is that if we are completely committed to God, if our priorities are on His kingdom and what He's doing and not simply like what we want to do, then we are more equipped to do that task. We're able to realize that, hey, this is the time to do something new. Uh, or this is the time that we need to honor this thing that is old and maybe apply, figure out how to apply it in a new situation. Uh, it's so easy. I mean, this happens a lot in the so-called worship wars. You know, folks who do older style worship will say, well, all these new songs are terrible. And the people who do new style worship will say, well, all the old songs are terrible. Right? Um, well, maybe God has done something great in the past, and maybe that's still relevant, and maybe God's doing something great now. Maybe there's room for all of that in God's kingdom. Um, and that applies way beyond just style of worship. That goes to everything and how we bear witness to what God has done with us and what we think that God is still doing. Uh, but if we're committed to God above all, if we're committed to God's kingdom, and we trust in that treasure, we trust in that pearl, we trust that he'll make things right when he sorts out the good fish from the bad fish, then we can trust that he will bring that work to completion, that he will be with us as we sort out how to bring out the treasure trove of what God has done for us, what God is still doing with us. Perhaps the one of the most essential ways that God does this, that God continues to show us anew how he is working with us, is through the meal that he gave us. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, 